0: Regardless of the cause of a disease, most diseases involve gene dysregulation. Omega Therapeutics is developing a new class of programmable epigenomic mRNA medicines designed to make specific epigenetic changes in correct abnormal gene expression to treat or cure diseases. We spoke to Mahesh Karande, President and CEO of Omega Therapeutics, about its pipeline of mRNA therapies how they work, and its recently announced collaboration with Nova Nordisk to develop an epigenomic controller to treat obesity. (music) Mahesh, thanks for joining us. Danny, thank you for having me. We're going to talk about epigenetics, omega therapeutics, and the use of mRNA to target the epigenome to regulate the activity of genes. perhaps we should begin with the epigenome. Can you explain for listeners what this is and how it regulates gene activity?
1: Yeah, no, definitely. I think all exciting topics. So look, um, people are familiar with the genome and genes, right? That's a very well-known term, phraseology, all of that, right? So the epigenome, if you think is, you know, just from the Greek epigenome, it's around the genome or one step above the genome, right? And that is... The control system that nature uses to control the genome, to put it very simply. So, essentially, epigenome is what really dictates how genes express, what happens with our cells, why a particular cell becomes a heart cell versus a lung cell, why a butterfly, you know, from a caterpillar stage develops and becomes a butterfly. So how does that happen? You know, Mother Nature has a way of making all of that happen. And that is essentially uh, the work of the epigenome. So what nature does is it lays something called epigenetic marks at different points in the, in the genome. Um, and that those epigenomic marks actually uh, regulate gene activity. So essentially, think of it, you know, to put it very simply, think of it as a thermostat or a the rheostat and if you want you know to change the temperature what you do is you go and dial up or dial down right that is precisely what mother nature does by using the epigenome to put it very simply that it literally lays these epigenetic marks that dial up or dial down a gene's expression and life goes on
0: many people think of the role genes play in disease in the context of genetically defined diseases but What happens to genes when people become sick?
1: Yeah, look, I think genetically defined diseases are sort of the rare diseases that most of us know when we think about genes and their correlation to disease, right? That, in fact, forms a very, very small subset of overall diseases and conditions known to us, right? But if you really think of disease in general, disease occurs because genes get either overexpressed or underexpressed. In vast majority of cases, right? Think of it as a, you know, as a software program misfiring. And if the software software program misfires, then you're not going to get your end result. right? That's really what happens in our body. As, you know, our genes express, right? It undergoes a process, you know, which is known very uh, well in biology called the central dogma of biology. So genes express through this epigenetic activity that I talked about, right? Then a process happens, which is called transcription, and mRNA is created. And then that undergoes translation, and protein is created. And protein, as we know, is the building block of life, right? So essentially, when disease occurs, irrespective of etiology, means irrespective of the origin of the disease, in vast majority of diseases, Genes either overexpress or underexpress. So they're not in the normal range of expression. That's really when people become sick or we get some sort of a condition. So if there was a way to bring genes back into that normal range, right? Then by induction, you would resolve disease because you would fix this problem right where it starts. That's really the role of genes in diseases.
0: What's, the potential to exploit that as a means of treating diseases that haven't been amenable to more conventional approaches.
1: Yeah. So, you know, once you've figured this out, right, then you kind of know how mother nature operates in this case, right? In this case, what mother does is she lays epigenetic marks at all of these different locations in the genome because of which genes express correctly. Now, you know, Uh, Nature goes wrong sometimes, its programs programs go wrong sometimes. And if you have a way of really co-opting that uh, that control system, and if you figure a way out of doing the exact same thing that Mother Nature does, but are able to write corrective programs, right, then you would actually be able to do uh, what nature does and bring the genes back into the right range of expression. That is actually the potential for this science so this science really delineates how our genes are organized and how they are controlled epigenetically so as to you know express correctly and life for life to go on what we have figured out and what, once you once you figure out you know this 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 science that we talked about right you could harness that science create uh, medicines uh, create a platform that creates medicines that very systematically goes after genes uh, you know single or multiple genes implicated in a disease and bring them back to correct expression simply by laying epigenetic marks that is really you know the potential uh, of this and you know what happens is some of these genes some of these um, you know genes that have proteins they are not amenable to conventional approaches so let me give you an example right in oncology for example cancer which is a poster child for epigenetic dysregulation. You know, there are many of these pan-essential oncogenes. Think of them as master regulatory oncology genes. You know, a KRAS is an example, CMIC is an example. These genes, it's very, very difficult to uh, do a few things. One is, some of them, it's very difficult to target them at the protein level with conventional medicines like small molecules or large molecules, simply because... Their structure, the protein structure and its half-life sometimes does not allow, you know, drugs to bind uh, to these to these proteins. Right. So there is it's very difficult to tackle it at the protein level. when you try to tackle it, you know, one step up in the central dogma at the MRNA level. What happens is these genes are so tightly regulated that if their MRNA comes under attack or even if the protein comes under attack, they regulate because these conventional approaches, the way they work is they have to work non-specifically everywhere. So think of a drug, a, a headache medicine that you take, right? It does not only resolve your headache, but if you had a pain in your foot, it would resolve that as well. The reason that happens is because it goes everywhere in your body and wherever there are those pain receptors, it acts on and it dampens your pain, right? That's pretty much how conventional drugs work. So with these kinds of oncogenes, for example, if you approach it conventionally, you kind of have to shut it, shut down its expression everywhere, because of which they autoregulate and crank out more and more uh, mRNA and protein, right? And if that happens, you need to put more drug in the system. And at some point, you can't put enough drug in the system to control these genes. So the only way to control these genes and their expression is to go, you know, very high up where they sit pre-transcriptionally. And... Sort of instead of completely shutting them down, tune them down such that you resolve disease but you prevent autoregulation. So this is just one example. Examples like regenerative medicine. If you could control master genes, look as we grow from an embryonic stage to a full-grown stage, what happens are what happens is genes get turned on for long periods of time, then they get shut off for long periods of time. Once, let's say your liver is fully developed. You know, I don't necessarily think, you know, uh, the gene that turns on liver function has to be expressed all the time. I'm I'm just simplifying this. Right. Obviously, science is far more complicated than that. But just take take this as a simple example. But what happens if, for example, your liver, um, you know, stops functioning well, because I don't know whether you had a viral insult, some sort of hepatitis or, you know, Somebody drank too much and developed liver cirrhosis and the liver stops functioning. Is there a way then to go after a gene that controls the liver function, turn it on or tune it up so that some part of the liver starts functioning again? If you could do that, that would be powerful, right? Conventional approaches don't allow you to do that. That's where, you know, what we are doing, which is, um, you know, control epigenomic modulation pre-transcriptionally becomes a very, very powerful approach to actually go after these diseases. There are many, many examples like this. And actually, one of the examples that I hope we talk about is, you know, this this uh, latest partnership that we did with Nova Nordisk in the field of obesity.
0: I, I want to talk about what Omega is doing. But before we do that, I, I thought it'd be useful to explain one concept. Can you explain what insulated genomic domains are and the role they play?
1: No, absolutely. So remember, I was talking about nature's control system of genes, right? Essentially, uh, you know, what nature has done is that it has organized all our genes and their regulatory elements, the regulators that control gene expression, in these three dimensional conserved, you know, loops or structures of DNA uh, that are called insulated genomic domains, okay? Individually, An insulated genomic domain can contain one or multiple genes, on an average about three genes, right? And there are about 15,000 of these IgDs that are distributed across the 23 chromosomes and are ubiquitous in every cell of our body. So if you think of every human cell, it has the exact same DNA, right, which makes sense. But epigenetically... A heart cell becomes a heart cell and a lung cell becomes a lung cell as we develop. So that's sort of the basis of the organization of our our genome. Right now, these IgDs, the whole system is actually very, very interesting (laughs) because it is evolutionarily conserved uh, across mammalian species. You know, in in the lower order mammals, you might have genomic sequences that are different. But the conservation of this system between non-human primates and humans is almost intact right? And this is this is a testament to evolution. Now, what happens here is, you know, there are a couple of things that are very, very interesting about these IGDs. First, an IGD become, is a wholly, uh, you know, contained control unit for the genes that sit in it, because only the regulators that sit inside the IGD can control the genes inside the IGD. So imagine that's a whole unit of gene control, right? Now, If you could tap into that, you could control gene expression. So how do you tap into that? There's another very interesting thing that we figured out as we were delineating this biology. And that was that the sequences, the genomic sequences of each of the regulatory element inside an IGD is unique in the entire genome. So if you pick up a sequence in one IGD out of the 15,000 and look at his genomic sequence, it is unique to that sequence in that IGD and is not repeated anywhere else across the genome, right? That means in each cell, you have that same sequence repeated for that particular element. That means you can target that regulatory element very specifically and use that to lay an epigenetic mark and control gene expression, right? That is pretty much what we have figured out. And that's why this IGD biology is so important because it gives you an ability to control genes and it gives you these very specific and unique targets that we, you know, that we call epigenomic zip codes. They're like epigenomic zip codes. They're unique. So we we coined this phrase epizips. That's really the basis of the biology by which we can control gene expression epigenetically.
0: You're developing a, a class of medicines that you call epigenetic controllers. How do these epigenetic controllers work?
1: So we call them epigenomic controllers exactly because, you know, of their function, right? They control the epigenome, right? Um, So the way they work is, remember, I was just telling you about these epizips and regulatory sequences, right? So if you could figure out a way to home into an epizip or multiple epizips and lay epigenetic marks there, then you could modulate gene activity for the gene, single or multiple genes that sit inside that IGD. So we figured that out. And what we have done is we have created a completely new class, right? Like you said, epigenomic controllers, and they are mRNA therapeutics. So everybody, you know, has heard of mRNA, obviously, in the context of vaccines. So we use mRNA very differently than how vaccines use mRNA. We use mRNA to enter the body, you know, a particular tissue and a cell, through what is called the ribosomal machinery, right? That allows mRNA to enter and go home into the nucleus of a cell. And there it expresses two sets of proteins. So this mRNA is encoded for two sets of protein. One is called, um, you know, a, a DNA binding domain, which is a protein that goes into, that is that is designed to home into that particular sequence of that episode, right? Like a homing pigeon. It goes in and it homes into that sequence, that single sequence, and locks itself over there. There, it expresses a second protein, mRNA expresses a second protein called an epigenomic effector. Now, these are naturally occurring uh, uh, proteins that that exist in our bodies that we are able to use or we are able to slightly modify for, for them to exactly carry out the function we want them to, right? So once that epigenomic effector is expressed there, its job is to regulate the gene. So if the gene is turned up or down, it actually brings it back into a normal range of expression by either dialing it up or dialing it down for a duration that we choose in terms of designing this molecule. That's really what we are doing. So this is how epigenomic controllers work. So to step back, this is the first systematic use of mRNA therapeutics as programmable epigenomic medicines. And the words are very important, right? They're epigenomic medicines because they work on the epigenome. They do epigenetic work. And they're programmable because we are able to prospectively design these for the DNA with the DNA binding domain to go into the exact location that we want and an epigenomic effector that regulates the gene exactly to the level we want, either up or down, and for the duration that we want. So that gives us three properties. One is high, high specificity, right, going into one location in the entire genome. And then two more things, which is the up or down modulation, so controlled modulation, and controlled durability, the length of time for which the drug has to act. So for example, you know, in chronic conditions, we could design epigenomic controllers that act for a long period of time so people don't have to take a drug every day they could take it probably once every month or once every two months or once every three months and for something like oncology where physicians usually treat patients every two weeks with an infusion we have created our first drug which is in the clinic to act every two weeks so that that fits into the oncology treatment paradigm so that's how programmable these are that's how Engineered these are, and we've designed these very prospectively to have the exact activity that we want them to have.
0: Are you able to target anywhere in the genome with these?
1: Yes, we can, because remember, you know, uh, you know, the genome has all of these regulators. We know all of them, so we have created a proprietary list of targets uh, epizips that only Omega has. So once we know which gene is correlated to which disease, and we know which IGD it sits in, then we have the entire real estate of that IGD, all of the regulators, right? They can be enhancers, they can be promoters, they can be, you know, repressors that control that gene expression. Um, And we can figure out which of those we want to target with what kind of epigenetic effect. And then we have our targets that we design these epigenomic controllers for, that go and actually do exactly what they're supposed to do. So we can pretty much target any gene in the entire genome with this approach. And the beauty of this is that makes our approach and our platform exceptionally broad because this can be used pretty much for any human gene, for any disease process, any disease.
0: How well understood are the genes need to target and modulate to treat any given disease?
1: Yeah, you know, that that's a great question, Danny. Look, fortunately for us, we are living in times where, you know, our understanding of disease biology is very, very uh, good, right? I mean, I think, you know, let me put it this way. If Omega had to just focus on known biology, where genes are correlated with disease, we would be building a phenomenal company for the next 15 years. We would not even have to worry about you know, unknown biology, although our approach allows us to even examine the entire genome uh, by disease to figure out which genes are implicated. We don't even need to do that. So I think there's a wide range of, there's a very, very wide range of diseases that we already know the biology for, and we already know what genes get implicated, either single or multiple genes. They can sit. Now, there are some diseases that are complex, right? Multigenic, as well as complex diseases, which it's not a single gene that controls or you know, a couple of genes. They could have multiple genes and you could take multivariate approach in controlling them, right?
0: That's the future. These are packaged in lipid nanoparticles. Is there anything packaged along with the mRNA that makes up a therapy? Are there things like promoters or, or things to target specific cell t- What does what a the therapy consist of?
1: Yeah, so you're right. I mean, I think, look, you know, from an omega therapeutic standpoint, as such, we are delivery agnostic. So when you talk about lipid nanoparticles, you're talking about delivery to particular tissues and cells, right? So we are agnostic in the sense we could use any sort of delivery particles. But what we have done is in our initial programs, uh, we have gone with lipid nanoparticles simply because mRNA, that is, inside of a lipid nanoparticle is a modality thanks to the vaccines that is in hu- more human beings today than all potentially all other biotech modalities combined right so I think from that standpoint it's dearest it's you know safe people understand what uh, what any if, if there is any toxicity profile of these drugs, what it will be like right so that's why we went in with mrna and uh, lipid nanoparticles now the way this works is, You know, to put it simply, obviously, mRNA is enclosed inside the lipid nanoparticles. And, you know, given the size of our constructs, we can actually fit multiple mRNA constructs in a lipid nanoparticle. That's why we can multiplex to different locations in the genome with a single approach, single therapeutic, right? And these lipid nanoparticles then are, you know, they are tissue specific. So, for example, right? the liver the liver has been targeted with lipid nanoparticles for a long time right and you know you have uh, new generational lnps or uh, lipid nanoparticles that we are using now in our program we also have another program where we are working towards an ind uh, targeting the lung we have our internal development in you know lung whether it's systemic like you would use in oncology or inhale like you would use in um, you know respiratory diseases we are also targeting uh, aspects of you know other tissues, right? For example, we have intrathecal delivery. We are looking at the skin. We are looking at direct joints. The Novo program that we are working on, we are work- we're going to be working on together to target adipose tissue. So. Lipid nanoparticles have come a long way. The entire industry is sort of working towards targeting all different types of tissues and cells. And Omega is at the forefront of it. But again, we are delivery agnostic. We could also use viral delivery, for example, you know, in in places which are privileged compartments. So, for example, the eye, et cetera, where risk of immunogenicity is very low. So there's there's a tremendous amount of breadth of delivery technology that we can leverage here with, with our... Epigenomic controllers, which are essentially these mRNA constructs,
0: you're using an AI-based computational engine as part of your drug discovery. What does this do, and how does this impact your ability to move experimental therapies into the clinic?
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think you know, Omega Therapeutics is uh, is you know in a big way um, leveraging AI and machine learning. I mean, you know, if if you just step back and imagine the data that we are dealing with here, right? The the quantum of data that we are dealing with, just genomic data, then you have disease data, then you have data correlating genes to diseases, all sorts of databases. And for us to rapidly crunch through all of those data, right, first of all, requires a tremendous amount of, uh, you know, algorithmic and computational ability, which we have, right? Secondly, once we decide, now I'm simplifying, once we decide which target sequence to go after, right? uh, You know, we have now to design our epigenomic controllers and particularly the proteins that the, the mRNA will express, right, that has to target that specific locus. And then we have to look at the epigenomic effectors that we will tether to that particular DNA binding domain. All of that is done algorithmically by using, you know, our our computational computational genomics and AI capabilities, right? So we have a super solid AI and comm genomics engine that is the core of Omega's platform technology. And what this does in terms of our ability, this is incredible. Now, what I'm going to say is just incredible, which is, you know, think of it this way. Once you know which disease you want to go after and you know which gene you want to go after, now you want to interrogate the entire genome and figure out the IGD where that gene sits. And then you want to interrogate that entire IGD, look at all the sequences of all the regulatory elements, which are the epizips in that IGD, right? And figure out very quickly which epizips you want to act and what kind of epigenetic effect you want to have, right? All of this, if as we use computational genomics and AI, takes us between three and four weeks. So imagine crunching through all of these data. Within three to four weeks, we already know where we want to act and what kind of mechanism we want to use. Then the next three to four weeks, we use our algorithms and actually design these constructs, right, and make them. So in, in, in that period, so give or take, you know, two to four months on the, you know, outside, uh, four months, right? You have five to 10 epigenomic controllers ready for testing. And these are literally, you know, designed prospectively. And we start testing them in vitro and in vivo, trying, you know, to figure out whether now, you know, experimentally, uh, whether they are actually going to have the exact same effect that we designed them for. That process takes us, you know, about six to nine months, and then we are able to declare a development candidate. So just imagine the timelines here, right? Four months, another six months, or nine months. So 10 months to 15 months, you can go from scratch to actually uh, declaring a development candidate. Now, if you have a lipid nanoparticle ready, like we had in the liver program, then you start your IND-enabling work, and that took us another, you know, uh, I would say 12 months. So for our first program that is in the clinic, and we are actually getting clinical data, patient data now from scratch to getting an IND cleared took us 27 months. I don't think there is anybody else who can do it this fast, right? And this is not fast for the sake of doing it fast. This is because we have the power of AI-based computational uh, genomics and the engine of the Omega platform. And we are able to prospectively design and engineer in the right properties that we are then eventually testing in the clinic. So we know how this drug is going to work. We know where it's going to act and we know exactly what it's going to do. And that's what then we start testing uh, eventually. And then obviously, you know, hopefully patients benefit from it. That's that's the power of this. That's how, that's what, you know, essentially allows us to move very, very fast.
0: When you get a, a platform like this that has such broad potential, it's always interesting to me the decision-making process on how you prioritize which indications you'll pursue. Uh, I'm wondering if you could talk a little about that. How, how did you go about determining where to to put your initial efforts?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And look, that's a terrific question, right? Because I think the risk with a platform like this, right, is you can just go too broad and start experimenting with lots of things and never get anything done, right? So first and foremost, I think the beauty of Omega. Uh, is that, you know, we have a team that is operationally very, very solid, right? I think first of all, you know, a big asset is your people, uh, are your people and your team. And we have exceptional people who are operationally very strong. They're not just sort of tinkerers and scientists, you know, who are sort of uh, just experimenting. They know how to take programs forward. So that's one piece, right? But now having, having said that, right, as we started initially, the company was formed in 2017, You know, I joined early 2019. I've been there close to five years. My chief scientific officer joined right after I did, right? And as we were looking at the different aspects of the, you know, exploring the power of the platform, we started figuring out, and we had, you know, let's say, give or take, you know, 20 to 40 different, you know, things that we were looking at in terms of genes and diseases, et cetera. And then as we, you know, kept working, some of them took the lead, right? So what we did was whatever took the lead, took the lead. And then at one point, we decided to just take a handful of them and say, look, let's actually create a pipeline, which actually reflects a pipeline even today, right? Because what we were doing as a young company with a completely new platform that nobody has worked on before, is exploring the breadth and depth of the platform, really pressure testing the corners of the platform. So what we did was we looked at, we we divided the disease world into sort of four areas, right? One was oncology, because like I said earlier, uh, epigenetics is a poster child of oncology. So it makes sense to actually think of oncology if you're using an epigenetic approach. In oncology, what you're doing is, you know, uh, controlling uncontrolled cell growth, right? Other end of the spectrum is regenerative medicine, where you're engendering cell growth. Remember, I was talking about the liver example earlier, right? So regenerative medicine obviously became another area to look into. And then monogenic diseases, which are single, you know, disease, uh, single gene diseases, which is the mainstay of all genomic medicines is something we had to demonstrate. And then we looked at multigenic diseases where if you have multiple genes in the IGD, you could control them with a single therapeutic and actually have tremendous impact. So that's how we set up our pipeline. And as we started prosecuting them sort of in parallel, some automatically took the lead, right? And as things started taking the lead, we interrogated that for market fit, unmet patient need, and, you know, where we'll have impact. And that's how we then finally defined our pipeline, right? So what we have done is since then, we've started prosecuting across our pipeline and, you know, our oncology program and CMIC for hepatocellular carcinoma took the lead. And CMIC by itself is an interesting gene because it is considered the holy grail gene in oncology. It has been unsuccessful it has been it people have tried to drug it over the last 40 years with conventional approaches they have not been able to do that right we believe this is the way to do it so that program automatically took the lead you know another program which is superb is hnf for alpha where we are looking at regenerating liver function you know that is applicable from everything from nash to potential potentially liver cirrhosis then we are going after inflammation and immunology with you know a multigenic uh igd Uh, CXCL123 and IL-8, these are four chemokines Uh, and so on and so forth. So that's really how we have prioritized the pipeline. And for future, what we are going to do is obviously we added something new into our pipeline. The deal with Novo, where we are going to look at a target that's unnamed as of now, but looking at obesity management. And as we as we do more and more partnerships, that's how we will expand the pipeline. Some things we will do internally. And some things we will extensively partner because there is no earthly way for Omega to actually exploit the entire breadth of this platform and its capabilities alone.
0: So obviously the obesity area became very hot last year with the approval of the GLP-1 therapies. What does the Novo Nordisk deal do for Omega? and, And can you give us some broad brush outlines of how it's structured?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, look, I think, you know, there are two aspects one is what the deal does and what it means and then what exactly is uh, uh is the is the thing that we are working on and why us right why did a giant like nova choose us so let me actually explain the second part first right so if you think about glp1s these are tremendous drugs right and they were always being developed for diabetes and obesity if you if you talk to You know, uh, people like Uli Stills from Novo, that's that's always what they have been working on. Right. However, the way the GLP ones work is, you know, for a lack of a better term, they trick us into believing that we are full and we are not hungry as a result of which we lose weight. There's also another process of gastric emptying. You've heard of people feeling satiated, people feeling nauseous, all of that. That leads to us not eating food, and if you don't eat food, yes, you will lose weight, right? And you have to take these you know medicines very regularly based on you know whether it's a weekly dosing or whatnot right and the The downside of this is that you have to take that chronically because once you stop taking it, your weight returns. And returns with a vengeance because essentially now you start feeling hungry, right? So while these drugs work beautifully for people, and I think that they're great drugs because I think, you know, it does take care of obesity for people who have no other option, right? Um, there's a downside to it. Now, what if there was a way where you could actually leverage fundamental science to create a much more durable and sustainable, uh, you know, approach to obesity? And actually there exists science like that. It's called thermogenesis. So simply put, right, we have two kinds of fat in our body, white fat and brown fat. When babies are born, babies pretty much have almost exclusively uh, brown fat. And brown fat is metabolically active. That fat burns itself off. That's why babies are chubby. But over time, they lose all their baby weight. And, you know, as we grow up, right? But as we grow up, you know, white fat gets... Accumulated And white fat is metabolically inert. It's not active. So it doesn't burn itself off. So simply put, if there was a way to use, you know, epigenetics and gene control to convert a transdifferentiate differentiated white fat into brown fat, which then automatically starts burning itself, right, and doesn't revert back to white fat, you would actually have a much more sustainable way of getting to weight loss. That is precisely the science behind our deal. And, you know, as Novo looked at this and we all, all aligned on the goals and what exactly we wanted to do. And once they did that, they realized that, well, Omega's platform technology is the one that will actually allow them to do that. Right. That's why we did this deal where we are really working on thermogenesis and converting white fat into brown fat. If this works, this is a complete game changer. There is no reason for to be for me to believe that this won't work. The biology is well known. Our technology is, you know, fungible across every disease biology. So I, I I have complete confidence that we'll be able to modulate the genes. Obviously, we'll have to prove it in the clinic, and that will take some time. But that's really the excitement of this. That's sort of the science of what we are doing in this thermogenesis deal. But You know, the other question was, what does this mean for Omega? And that is actually extremely important, right? This is a huge validation for Omega's platform and technology. If you step back, right, when you are on a pioneering journey like Omega is on, where, you know, you're creating a completely new class of drugs that nobody has seen before, you know, the understanding of a platform has been there. People get it. If you talk to people at Big Pharma, they get it, but, you know, typically, they would like to see clinical data, they would like to see it proven out, right, before anybody starts putting a bet. I mean, go back to sort of the 1970s. I imagine this happened with monoclonal antibodies when Roche first, Genentech, actually introduced monoclonal antibodies for the first time. And then everybody started working on monoclonal antibodies, right? Now, there are people who are working on what we are doing. They're several years behind. But for us being on a pioneering journey you know it's it's a huge validation that this platform works and a, a uh, which we have by the way proven in the clinic right we have clinical data we have uh, we have delivered proof of platform in the clinic this validation allows a giant like novo which is well known in research and in the field of obesity to say that look for the next generational obesity drug after glp ones we want to really work with omega to tackle some of this fundamental science of thermogenesis because we believe that that is the platform that can help that is a huge word of confidence and validation and we feel that that's that's tremendous recognition for omega
0: how, how far will omega take a candidate and is there some decision point for no
1: yeah so the way this deal is structured is that we will be working you know on what's what we are very good at which is obviously you know doing the early part of the work discovery coming up with the epigenomic controllers right and then you know, working on a few targets and then what will happen is once we get to a development candidate stage you know nova will take a license and then nova will actually start doing the work and taking it into ind and beyond because Nova really at the end of the day are the experts in obesity omega is not a company that is going to develop internal expertise and in obesity beyond what we need at this stage right so that's that's the deal it's a real partnership you know they will be involved obviously in the science etc right from the get-go we'll be involved with them even after we hand it over to them to make sure that as they take it through ind you know we understand our drug better our you know the epigenomic controller better we have already taken it through ind so it's a real partnership but that's where the handoff will take up Happen and they will take a license and then they'll take it to IND and beyond.
0: Given the the broad potential of the platform, how are you thinking about the pursuit of other partnerships?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I'm hoping, Danny, that this actually precipitates many more partnerships, frankly, because we have been talking to big pharma partners for a while. People understand this, but I think, you know, like I said, with a completely de novo technology, sometimes it takes time for people to really wrap their heads around. And, and start believing that this is not, you know, a research project, right? And it's not. We are in the clinic. We have demonstrated that this platform works, you know, preclinically in several disease areas. Now we have proved it in the clinic. We have a Novo deal. So I'm really hoping that this starts precipitating many more partnerships. And, you know, that's the only way. And the reason this is important, by the way, is not just for Omega to have partnership. The reason this is important is because this platform is so broad and it is applicable to so many different diseases that as an ecosystem of biotech and big pharma and investors, if we are not able to exploit this platform, you know, we are probably, you know, putting, um, you know, putting on the back burner some of these pathbreaking drugs that could help patients that have no other treatments available to them. Right. Think about CEMIC. Nothing has worked for the last 40 years. People have tried to drug that gene. Unsuccessfully for 40 years. If our platform works, which there is every indication that it should, because of how we approach it, that we have overcome all of the uh, earlier issues with targeting CMIC. So that tells me that this should work eventually in the clinic. Obviously, we have to prove it in the clinic. But this is the only way potentially to create a CMIC drug that would work. We don't want to leave that on the table. That's why partnerships are important
0: because we can't do this alone. Omega went public in 2021. It's been a rough few years for public biotechs. The stock is down from its $17 IPO and and trading below $5. It it did bounce on the Novo deal, but what's the discussion with shareholders like these days?
1: Look, I mean, you know, honestly, I think everybody understands the markets, right? I mean, I think, uh, you know, 2021, 2022, 2023. Now we are in 2024, right? I mean, the markets have been, um, have <laughs> to put it very mildly, it's been a wild ride. Look, at the end of the day, right? What is most important for Omega and a team, my team, and you know, a company like us and our shareholders, is that we keep the eye on the ball, right? We are well capitalized, we have money, right? Look stock price is one way to look at it but honestly at the end of the day we control the controllables which is everything that is not controlled if you look at omega every commitment that we have made publicly to our investors to our shareholders right from doing a crossover round c which was in the early 21 ipo and beyond we have kept our promises and we have delivered on every promise made operationally this is a very very strong company To take a completely de novo platform like our platform, you know, when the company was started in 2017, to get an IND cleared in 2022 is incredible in a completely new way of even looking, thinking about medicine. That's what our shareholders understand. So we have some really great investors. They're very sticky, long term investors. And we control the controllables. I can't control the stock market and the stock price. So what we do is we keep our eye on the ball and we continue to deliver um, on our commitments and on our operational priorities. That's the best that I can do. And then look at some point, you know, if we could come out of the dot com bust of the 2000 and the 2008 stock market crash, I think we'll be coming out of this as well.
0: Well, how far will existing cash take you and what's the plan for raising additional capital?
1: Yeah, look, I mean, what we have publicly said is that at the end of last year, our last disclosure was the third quarter, that we have close to $90 million in cash and that will carry us you know, into third quarter of 2024, right? That's what we have publicly declared. Look, I mean, I think there are many uh, many options available, right, in terms of raising money, doing BD deals, uh, et cetera. And we are always considering all of those. Um, and those options remain available to us. Our shareholders, investors are all extremely supportive. So more on that when we do something. Uh, but look, I think we feel very fortunate to have you know, a, a set of investors that believe in the company. Um, and you know, we use our capital very wisely. So I'm not very concerned about that. You know, I think the company has tremendous longevity.
0: Mahesh Karande president and CEO of Omega Therapeutics. Mahesh, thanks so much for your time today.
1: Danny, thank you very much. Thanks for taking the time to let me talk about Omega Therapeutics. It's a super exciting company.
0: Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week,